This episode contains mentions of substance abuse and overdose. This podcast is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. We are not licensed professionals or therapists, and we are not attempting to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure. This podcast is strictly our experiences and opinions only. Becky and I have known each other for a long time now. I won't say how long as not to age myself. She's the younger but wiser one, and that's why I've always liked her so much. She's younger than me, and yet through all of life's hardships and bumps and celebrations and lessons, she's always the one to keep a grounded perspective. She remains calm, and she sees the bigger picture. We have seen each other go through a lot, like a lot, 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 more than the average middle-aged duo of friends I'm willing to bet. But usually, when I'm down on my luck, she's doing wonderfully. And when I'm on cloud nine, she's facing something testing. And for some reason, a little over three weeks ago, we realized we were both facing something mountainous. And in each of our lives, we were used to leaning on the other. And for the first time since we met, we had to really test our own patience and run face first into the despair. And ironically, we were unable to pull the other out of this one. As soon you'll hear, her wisdom is a wonder at guiding her. In my case, I always Google everything. So I Googled and Googled and soon realized upon my Googling that two things were happening. And it sent my mind into a tailspin. One was that there was no, and, and I mean no, I'm, pr- I'm pretty good at PI. There was no real information out there on how to actually address what was causing the inner hurt or assist in healing it and making the next chapter a better place. Frankly, it shocked me. I looked on YouTube. I looked on Google. I looked for every type of drug, how they were administered. I looked and I looked. I wanted to know how someone forgave someone who had lied about drug use, not just in their hearts, but bear hug forgive. I wanted to know how to rescue and save the user. I wanted to know why people abuse others so that I would know how to heal, not just know what is narcissism or narcissistic abuse and what goes through their mind and their deeds but how to armor up I wanted to level up I wanted to glow up I wanted to bow our outros on these chapters with a knowledge so sturdy that it wouldn't come back around to test us again because isn't that what a test is a lesson you take over and over until you know how to pass and it does it keeps coming back around one last time until you pass It's like a giant red F or a giant red flag on paper. Abuse has cycles, both kinds, addiction and narcissistic. So how does one armor up on the whole 360 of that? Well, I believe it is to go within to your own heart and your own power. And so that brings us here to introducing you to one strong, brave, resilient woman. I asked Becky to come with me for this ride, knowing we are not getting paid. We are jumping in this full faith-based, caffeine, overdosed, underslept, but most importantly, we are on this ride with you. Because if you want something you've never had, you have to do something you've never done. So stay a moment, because along this ride, we may lose some lessons we thought were correct, but we have so much more to gain. Everything, really. And... We wanted to bring you along for the ride, and not just to listen either. 
we want you on the ride with us, my loves, because if you're here and you're listening, that tells us you're ready to heal. We are asking you to trust us, come aboard, buckle up, strap in, make yourselves comfortable, take a breath, and hold on, because we are about to tell you how to heal your very own story. Welcome to the Phoenix Rising Podcast. And without further ado, we will start by proving to you we are suffering along with you. I present episode one, Becky's story. I was a little nervous at first when you approached me about the podcast because this is a very sensitive and sometimes heavy subject for people dealing with addiction. And I was nervous because I want to come on here and help people heal, especially through my experience and my story. But I also want those to understand that I myself am not an addict, but my husband is a recovering addict. And I want right away for those that do struggle with addiction, that this is not a place where we're going to talk negatively about an addict. This is going to be raw and unreal and very important, hard conversations to have by those affected by addicts and by those that are currently in recovery and those that have been recovered for 10 years. This is for everybody. My story specifically, just because I'm not a recovering addict and have never dealt with drug abuse, I also feel is very, very important to share because my husband being a recovering addict is also a hard thing to talk about because an addict, their choices do affect those around them. So when you approached me about this, I was really nervous. I don't want anybody to think that there's any kind of judgment towards anyone who is an addict or knows someone that is. This is all about finding support and healing through everybody's stories because everybody's stories are different and unique and as is mine. And so I want everyone to know right away that I was nervous to come on here because my story may be different than Everyone else is, but it's also important. I think I want those listening to know that they have support and they're not alone. Because the biggest part of my story is I was very, very deeply alone through all of this. I 100% support anyone that has an addiction It is a struggle. It is so difficult. It is not easy. And they need that support. They need it a lot. They need to be loved. They need to be accepted. They need to still feel like they are valuable. And that's where a lot of the focus goes. But I think those that have been hurt by an addict are the ones that don't get the support. And that's what my story is about. Me and my husband met. It was actually through a mutual friend. I had a friend for a lot of years, and it was actually his best friend. 
So not going too far into the past, I was married before him when I was super young. I was raised very religious. So being married very young is very common. And uh, that marriage lasted about five years, did not work out. And so I was back in the dating pool and I was not happy about it. But um, we do have these groups of singles that get together. And I had a friend take me there and that's where I initially met him. And it was very right away, very instant as far as connection with me and him. It was very quick as far as getting to know each other and getting pretty serious because we had a lot of fun. I was still pretty young. And um, yeah, that's how we initially first met was just um, through that friend and then kind of through that religious aspect of doing things together. I think for me, I really grew up feeling like I was not very loved. I, my parents did not stay together when I was young. And so our mother pretty much raised us. And then I had gotten into a relationship pretty young, didn't work out. So it was, it was like a cycle of constantly wanting to feel loved and accepted and not getting that to the fullest of what I needed. When I was with him, when we were dating, I felt like he really did make me feel like I was important and valuable. And I had a lot of people tell me that we moved pretty quickly as far as getting engaged and being married. But it felt right to me, and I had to tell myself that that's what mattered, that if I wasn't ready, that I would have known. So it was pretty quick. He treated me well, and we had lots of fun together, and humor is a big part of what I look for, and that's what he was. So we had a lot of fun, and we... It was just something that happened pretty quickly, and I and I just felt very strongly that that was where my life was supposed to go was with him. So when we were dating, he told me that he had an addiction to heroin. I wasn't quite sure how to take it at first because I'm this young, naive, very strictly raised religious. That kind of thing is, like, shocking. It's not talked about much. And so I remember him telling me, and I went home that night, and I just was very emotional for him. I wasn't sad that that maybe it wouldn't work out because of what he told me. I was sad for him. I just had this, this empathy, like this sadness for him. And so he told me a little bit about his addiction and that he struggled with it for the last several years. And so we had some good talks, and he found some groups. The church offers a lot of support groups for for addicts. And so he went and did that and was able to get clean pretty quickly. At the time, I don't think he was using as as heavily as, as maybe that I would have assumed. So it was easy for him to kind of get clean and be able to have us be married. Knowing that it was there is something I kind of had to learn about and kind of understand, which was difficult. But our first few years of marriage were great, and he never had any issues. And again, with my experience, I was just like, oh, he's healed. He told me he had the addiction. He hasn't been using anymore. 
we're going to get married and live happily ever after. So there were lots of really good years that we had together. Wonderful. And there was no issues because in my mind, I thought, oh, well, he admitted to the problem. He accepted it, which is the first step. And now he's taking accountability for it and he's better. That's always kind of there with an addict. When you're with someone or know someone who's an addict, it will always be part of their life, always, no matter what. There will always be triggers. There will always be temptations. So that is always there. But it was something that he handled very well, communicated very well about. And so in my mind, it was that was it. He had admitted to me I was the first person he ever told that he had an addiction. And so I, I took that. I took it. It was just really meaningful to me because I felt like he could be open and honest to me about it. And so I knew that with such a hard problem to admit, he was able to communicate that to me. So I knew that even if issues did arise, that it was okay and that he would come to me. 2011, we were married and we had our first baby in 2014. So those few years were great. 2014 is when our first son was born. And so new mother, exciting, scary, hard, all the things when you're a new mom. He was still quite small. And my husband was working for a company with his dad. And he'd been there working in that company for years. This is, this is what's so crazy to me is I never saw any signs. I know there are lots of different substances you can use. I know even with alcohol, it's sometimes pretty easy to get. It's very obvious. You know, there's, there's lots of different factors. There's lots of different substances. Him in particular with heroin, there are lots of different ways to use and it depends on how much you're using because your body builds a tolerance. So once you can't get enough, there's other ways. So I didn't have any any ideas, any suspicion. Behavior wasn't weird. There was a little bit of fatigue sometimes. I felt like he was always tired, and so sometimes I felt like I couldn't always leave the baby alone with him. I just assumed it was we were new parents. He was working a lot. We were adjusting. I got a phone call one day, and his parents asked to come over to our home, and they wanted to have a talk. So they came over and sat down with us and they just told me some very unexpected, shocking events that they had noticed with my husband. Because he works for the company, he has access to money, he has access to going and using that. His parents come over and and sit down with us and they say that they are suspecting that uh, my husband's using again. And in my mind, I like almost laughed. I was like, no way. It would be so obvious if someone that I knew and lived with all the time, I would, I would know. But me, again, I, I do have to bring up the religious aspect. Like, I was not raised to really pay attention to that. You kind of just are in a bubble. And if something like that happens, you don't really know what to look for. You don't know the signs. You don't know any of that. And because it was just a very minimal blip when we were first married, it was there was nothing to really look at as far as signs or anything he was using. Before we had children, everything was great. And 
when you sit with someone who's an addict and you kind of do what most people call an intervention. I wasn't in on the intervention, but they just confronted him and asked if he was using and he did admit that he was. And that to me was like gut wrenching because I thought, how did I not know or see? And I almost still feel, still didn't really believe that he was. And he just vaguely just said, yeah, I have a problem. And so they said, we have a counselor we've worked with before. Would you like him to come over and do an assessment on you and figure out the next steps? And he, yes, he did admit he wanted to get better, which was good. I know a lot of addicts don't react well in that and they don't want to be put on the spot. But he immediately said that he did have a problem he had been using. And so while we waited for this counselor to show up, his dad said, I want you to take everything you have and give it to me. And that was the hardest part because I did not know how you use heroin. I mean, it starts with prescriptions. And when that's not enough, you can go find somebody to buy it from and you can smoke it and then... There's more after that. There's lots of different ways to get it. And once your body builds a tolerance, it gets stronger and stronger and the dose gets higher and that's when it becomes fatal. But I didn't know any of this. And in my mind, when I look back at it, I think he could have been so close to having an overdose or something and I wouldn't have known. I would have had no idea because he didn't necessarily show the signs of an addict. So he went to his car with his dad, and he pulled stuff out of the bathroom, and there was there everything was. And I thought, okay, this is real. This is happening. And I was still in shock at this point. And so the counselor came over and sat down, did a little assessment, talked about the program. It was just like an outpatient program. There was therapy, counseling. He was able to meet with them once or twice a week, you know, get the help he needed. And I'm so grateful that his parents were there and they knew what to do because I wouldn't have. The counselor left and then he walked out the door and then he called me on my phone. He said, I need you to take him to the emergency room right now because if he uses one more time he's going to overdose still I was in shock I was in complete shock we his his parents and I uh, took him to the emergency room and admitted him and just let them know that he needed to be put on an IV to flush everything out so that he could get the drugs out of his system and and be able to start the process of of healing well, as anyone that's listening that is an addict or has seen that, that is probably the worst thing you'll ever experience in your life. And just finding out hours before that he was using and then watching him lay on that bed, watching the excruciating pain that he had to go through was probably the worst thing that I've ever seen. He just was laying there, not being able to have any drugs in his system, and you have very massive body aches, 
you shake, you vomit, like your body is just like, imagine I couldn't even explain what, what it would feel like. I asked him one time what withdrawals feels like. And he said, some of you guys might know, not know this, but if you have ever bleached your hair and you bleach it and your scalp is really sensitive. And then if you tone it, Right after, like right after, not the day after, but right after. I do that a lot. Your whole entire scalp burns and itches and your eyes water and it is like the worst feeling ever. And he does that with his hair sometimes. He likes to have colored hair, so he has to bleach it. And he told me once that feeling all over your body with no relief at all. The problem with an emergency room is they don't, they don't have the expertise to treat an addict. And so they kept saying they were going to put him on an IV and flush him out and give him some medicine to help with the discomfort and the pain. But they had a lot of emergencies, and he was not on their top priority. So he's shaking, he's vomiting. It's a terrible, terrible thing to experience. Watching someone you love go through that physical pain was really hard to watch. I hate to admit that I was so overwhelmed and shocked and at this point realizing that it was real that I said I was going to leave. I just was like, I want to go home to my baby and I trust that the nurses can take care of him, but I I can't watch him go through this. I went home and then later that night they did release him to a drug rehab facility where they could give him the right meds and get him the help that he needed. So they had programs, they had counseling. So he was in there for about a week and I could go visit him. And I think that is when all of the hurt set in for me because I initially it's shock and you watch them go through that, which is very difficult. And for me, I was just heartbroken. I was just so sad that he had to go through that. And then at the same time, I was very, very hurt and betrayed that He'd been using for so long and I had no idea and that his body was so sick from it and the whole time I had no clue and that's when it hit me really hard that I felt betrayed I went into rehab a few times to visit him I cried a lot I was angry I thought I said to him why would you do this to us and our son I just did not understand why He would make these choices to hurt us. When he got out, he still had to work. I mean, we still had to function. So we ended up ending our lease, and we moved in with my mom for a little while. He continued to relapse and relapse and relapse and relapse. He would steal cars. He would steal money. He would steal coworkers' cars and money. He would take money out of our account, and he would relapse and relapse and relapse. And then he would come home and act like everything was normal. And that's the most hurtful thing when you you watch a loved one go through this because all you want to do is help them. All you want to do is be like, what can I do? How can I take this from you? And that's something I learned just recently after all these years that I tend to fix people. So I was looking at him and going, okay, what's the next step? Where are we going to go? How are you going to get the help? You know, it was never about 
I'm hurt and betrayed and I have this baby at home and it was not about how I felt. I was constantly trying to make sure that he was okay and that he was getting better. And so I sat with him during these sessions with his counselor and they taught me a lot, which I am very grateful for. They taught me a lot about addiction and how it affects the brain and that he doesn't intentionally go use to hurt me. When you're an addict, all you think about is your next use. You don't think about how it hurts your loved ones, how it affects them in any way. Because when your body is so dependent on that, all all your body wants is, is the, when's the next time I can use. And the more you use, the harder it is. And I didn't understand that. So I started to feel angry and resentful towards him. I was mad. I For a while, he... what. We were not together for a while. He, I asked him to not be around because I was so mad. And I did learn a lot, which I think is really important when you watch someone go through something like this. You really have to understand an addict. A lot of people disagree that it's not a disease. You do choose to use. That is a choice. But as far as once you do that, it does become a disease and it doesn't matter how you get it. You will lie and steal and do anything you can in your power to use again. And so even though he was doing outpatient therapy twice a week, I sat in sessions to try and understand. He started to, to react to it. He started to be more like himself. And so because of that, that was how he started his journey on sobriety so he continued to go to meetings went to counseling and I was able to kind of understand more of what it was like on his end as an addict I remember he hit his one year mark being clean and that was a really really important big deal and so every year he was clean we would do like a little celebration I think that's the most important thing when someone's hitting those milestones is to celebrate it like it's a birthday. Some people call it their birthday because it's it's the new it's the new them because he's not the same. He's risen from the ashes. He's gone through the pain and the sorrow and and all of the lies and the secrets and the hiding, he went through all of that and rose from that. And that is a very, very difficult thing to do as an addict of any substance. And then to be able to every single day wake up and fight that you can make another day. He did that and he, seven years, I mean, seven years is a long time. Seven years he has been clean and been able to stay off of heroin altogether. And I've seen changes. I've seen good. I've seen hardships. And his story is absolutely amazing because it's not, it's not always going to happen. They may not recover. They may never get the help. And in my case, I'm lucky to say that he was able to overcome that and be able to become clean. And so I'm grateful that I saw him go through all of that and I was able to be there to support him. But as I look back, 
it took me years, a lot, a lot of years to let go of anger and resentment and hurt. Because again, I, I didn't have a support system. I didn't go to a family group. I didn't have friends that understood. I was raised very religious. And so if it was something that you shared with others, there was not an understanding and there was lots of judgment. And there were times that we would share our story and people would have two reactions. Either they related because they knew someone or they themselves have gone through something similar or there was very harsh judgment because it is something that is difficult to talk about and be open about because it's very vulnerable. And so that is something that is really hard because I didn't have a circle of friends or anyone in my community that understood what it felt like to have a spouse that struggled with this. And if I tried to share it or I needed the support, there usually was judgment or not the validation that I needed. And so I really had to go through this whole entire process with him, being that support, but then not getting it myself. And so that is something that I really hope as I tell this, that even if one person is going through anybody that they love and care about that is going through this, that they see is going through this really hard path of drug abuse, that you don't have to do it alone. And I, I didn't know where to go. I didn't know where to look. There was no resources. There were no podcasts. There were no blogs. And I think for you and me, it's so important for us to do this because if I can help one person not feel so alone, I would do it for that one person. I would do it for a million people. I would do it for 10. Because just sharing the story alone is hard to even articulate and put into words because I've never really openly shared it. I've never, I've always shared his side and his story and his recovery, but I've never talked about how hurtful it is when you are lied to, when someone that you love looks you in the eyes and tells you that they are not using. That is the most hurtful thing that you could ever experience, especially by someone who really loves and truly cares about you. And so I never learned that it wasn't personal. I never learned that he, was, he wasn't doing it to purposely hurt me because he didn't know any better. Because somebody that's an addict just think about the drugs 24-7 and they don't think about how it's hurting somebody. And I want people to know that it's okay to feel mad and hurt and angry if somebody's making these choices and it's affecting you personally because you can find healing and you can find support because if you don't like me it's been a really long time since I've gone through this and that's the one regret I have that I wish I took care of myself and so 
again, he's he's always going to have struggles. He's always he may always have relapses. He may always that's always going to be part of our life. But I'm at a point now where it's okay to be to feel the feelings around it. It's okay to be angry or mad or upset if it happens again because you're human. We're all human and and it's okay to feel those things. Hearing Becky's story was a gift to me. I had never actually heard it as her best friend, and that is because she heals from within. She doesn't talk or complain about almost anything in her life. She carries it, and she cures it. After her and I decided to share these deep, personal stories with the world, our stories, and your stories, we realized it was a great way to show people that they weren't going through this alone, but... We also realized we don't have the expertise to cure, to heal, to show you the truth of who you really are. And that is where part two of our episodes come in. We had mentioned abuse does have cycles. So how does someone overcome each individual portion of the cycle? In Becky's story, she presented you with every single part, but she wanted to start from someplace else, someplace that comes from within. She wanted to show you where your true power lies. So we each decided to choose one person we felt could represent our stories and yours. And we really hoped that we could convince these incredible, successful men and women to come on with a new angle, a new meaning, a new perspective into the healing journey. And that is where Kimo Capano, the light seer, comes on. Part two, Becky's story. So we're here with Kimo. He is a Hawaiian high seer. And I want you to explain to people what that means. And if they're not familiar with like your intuitive practices and, and your, and all of that, if you want to kind of explain that to those listening that may not understand what that means. Of course, of course. So first of all, aloha kako. This is to the collective. My name is Kimo Kipano, and I am what is known as a kanaka maoli Hawaiian seer, which is a very wonderfully descriptive way to say that I tune in to senses and I use my abilities to move through healing modalities. Now, my work that I use as an Aboriginal Hawaiian seer, I fuse a whole bunch of my abilities together. So we take the ability to see spirit. I was a very young spiritual communicator by the time that I was three. I was doing genealogy by the time I was three and a half. By the time I was six, I was doing color work with auric colors and more. And as I continued to grow and tried my hardest to be a muggle, (laughs) I tried so hard. As I continued to develop, then I went through different kinds of spiritual practices trying to tune into seeing myself as a medium, it didn't quite fit because I was seeing much more beyond spirit. And for all of our our new neophytes, neomediums are the ones who are in communication to spirit energy, spirit energy only. But then as I started to lean into that, it didn't fit. So then they tried to see if they could get me to understand my psychic abilities. And psychic abilities are you tuning into your senses. And it fit for a little while until it didn't fit. 
because I realized that in my psychic abilities, I was seeing more than my, my teachers and my spiritualists. So then through the process, through that, then they said, well, maybe he's supposed to be an intuitive. <laughs> Just growing and growing, right? Yeah. And I felt like, great, I'm going to work intuitively. And I started to educate by the time I was 16. I was leading workshops by the time I was 16 to young, young children, much younger than me and adults much older than me. And I did that for over two decades in New York City, started a whole bunch of programs working intuitively, but it still didn't quite fit because I was also working creatively as a performer on Broadway and as a creative individual. And as I continued to lean into those abilities, I learned that my medium abilities, my psychic abilities, my intuitive abilities are all leading me down towards the pathway of healing. And that's the one that I didn't want. <laughs> that's the one I didn't want. I tried so hard to avoid. And in fact, if, if you were a friend of mine, you would know that in New York City, that's the language that I do not use. But what ended up happening as I started to advocate for the things that I could see and then get validations from the things that I can see. Then I started to be approached by doctors and scientists. And when I learned that I could see inside of the body to actually try to reconfigure the things that I see as sickness and malady, I learned that it was actually quite easy for me to redirect it, redirect the energy that I could see. That doesn't mean I can cure cancer. I would never make such a bold claim, but I do have an understanding of some of the maladies that kind of are based in emotional trauma or stress or anxiety, which then contribute to that malady. So for example, when I work with cancer patients, we work really hard to find some of the genesis of thought pattern that was in contribution to how cancer manifested. So when we go through that and the healing ability and the removal and the redirection of those kinds of feelings and more, we've learned that we can take pain levels of stage 4b cancer from a level 7 to a level 2 or we could take some kind of de degenerative problems and complications in the body from an 8 to a 4 i've even worked with um you know menstrual cycles from a 6 to a 1 <laughs> it, just, it just depends right now all the women are going to come knocking on my door yeah they're going to be like um what did you say <laughs> right so in those abilities, I actually started to proudly wear the, the hat of the high seer because in Hawaiian culture, the high seer was the person who fused all of those abilities and then redirected it into the form of emotional healing and spiritual healing and physical healing. So now, instead of shying away from that, I, I wear that with honor and I wear it with pride. Oh my That's God, <laughs> that was amazing. That's, I just love how you just, after all the things you went through, the one thing you didn't think you'd do, that's what you're doing. Right. And I didn't do it for a reason. When I was a child and I would look at individuals, I would see all of the motion and the energetics and the vibrations inside of the body. And I still see that. I, I, we, we've met before and you know that it's very hard to lie to me because <laughs> when we lie, our bodies change vibration because your body has an inability to lie. So when I was a child and I would look at other individuals speak and communicate to each other, I found that in my own mind, I was saying, well, I don't know why they're saying that on the news because they don't actually believe that. 
where I'd watch a politician speak and I would say, well, no, he actually got that information from someone else. I would look at prophets speak and I would say, no, that actually didn't come from what you think of as God. You were told that by 12 other people in the room. And I could see that information clearly. So then from there, I was like, I don't want to be a healer because all those things are happening and people are literally addicted to their own thought patterns, which means that they're sick because their thoughts are leading them towards that way. And how am I going to make any kind of change? And I found that by, I was communicating with my teachers, doing sessions on them by the time I was in high school. And then the process of not wanting to heal was because I truly believe that most people make themselves sick. And it's more than just redirecting their pain in the moment, which I would do, but then it would come back. It would come back the next day or a few days later. So I said to myself, I don't want to do that because everyone is just making themselves sick. But I was young. I'm much older than now. <laughs> older now. I mean, now I'm in my 40s and now I'm not afraid of nothing. So now, <laughs> now we lean into it a little more. <laughs> that's amazing. That's phenomenal. Do you ever, like, I'm sure now that you've learned because now like where you're at, like, mm -hmm. has it, was it overwhelming when oh, you were getting yes. all of that and having to like tune in and turn up, you know, like, was that so difficult, especially as a child? As a child, yes. Um, you know, I, I work with so many kids because I, I lead so many programs and there are children who I know will be far more gifted than me because they're learning now. They're learning at three, they're learning at seven, they're learning at 10 with open floodgates, with direction, with someone honoring and validating their unique abilities. I know they will be far more talented than me. And there are people out there now that are far more talented than me. I, I'm looking for more people who have abilities similar to mine so I could bounce my abilities off. It's hard for me sometimes because I need bounce back. And I, I have only found one other individual who can bounce off of my abilities, but she is no longer in practice. So if you are listening and if you are an educator and if you know you possess wonderful abilities, then let's connect because I need someone to spar against. Yeah, hope chemo out. <laughs> someone to spar against. My young students that I know will be far more gifted than me, I'm still in the educational process with them, guiding and leading them. Anyway, so to get back to your answer, as I divert a little bit, to get back to your answer, the majority of my life was spent in overabsorption and confusion and feeling a, a little bit um melodramatic with my with my abilities they were incredibly hyperbolic i didn't know how to control them so i felt overwhelmed all the time and i was never one of those child mediums or even adult mediums who use language like this well let's just see who comes through that's not what it was like for me because they were always through they were always always in the room and they're still always in the room so I had to teach myself certain techniques. So one of the techniques that I utilize when I look at all the spirit energy of you right now in front of me on, on Zoom, I have to organize all your spirit energy and I put them all into waiting rooms <laughs> and, I, and I do not allow them to speak until I am ready for them to speak. And then I will allow one or two of them to move themselves forward when I am moving through different kinds of modalities. So I'll let one of them move forward if I'm working on a healing process. And it's really exciting because I watch them. Sometimes as I'm talking to someone and I'm doing a healing process, I'll watch their grandmother touch their neck or touch their solar plexus, which will give me an indicator because I have an understanding, but I have rules. 
if you're going to come in, you're going to come in to help. And they do. And then when I talk about it, so we have some spirit energy talk touching your, your L3. What is the problem with there? And someone will say, I have a curve in my L3 spine. So then we start to then dissect really things even further. So they're actually really wonderful helpers and confidants. So I just have to organize them. Otherwise, they will all speak at the same time. <laughs> I love that you say waiting rooms, like, wait your turn. I'm not exactly. ready yet. <laughs> sometimes they'll bulldoze they'll like a whole bunch of them will push through then i've got to move them back into the waiting room also sometimes when they really push through it's because it's it's critical information so there's often times when i'm in session i'll have to say we're going to pause for a moment there is strong messaging that absolutely needs to come through and i haven't yet found that when i share that information someone has never yet said to me that doesn't make any sense everyone has said that is what i needed because wow. They know they have a connection. They always have a connection. So that's spirit energy. When it comes to psychic energy, I would get very overwhelmed. And I'm sure that there are other empaths out there listening to this. I would get overwhelmed by emotional energy, which is not spirit energy. I would get emotional uh, around architecture because I was picking up on the nuance of the energy that was happening inside of rooms and in spaces of architecture, not realizing that I was picking up on the energetics of actual spaces, including being outside um, in, in nature, or maybe something would have happened. I went to Gettysburg when I was 15, and it was very hard for me. Oh, I, I can imagine. Very, very hard. I was in New York City when 9-11 happened, and only in 2018 did I find the bravado to go visit the site, and it completely overwhelmed me. And But I learned, though. Everything is a learning process. And now I feel very confident about guiding other individuals who have similar abilities that I have to be able to guide them through those processes because I look at everything as a learning process. So everything is just a filter. I don't see spirit energy all the time anymore. I make choice to see it. I don't see elemental energy all the time. I have to make choice. And through that choice, then we become much more in charge of our own facility. And that's why you feel powerful. <laughs> That's amazing. And then you can teach everybody else that have those abilities and gifts and, and from what you learn. That's great. From what I learned. And, and, you know, Becky, you and I have actually been in longer workshops together, right? <laughs> and what I, what I talk about in all of my workshops that I do as I travel and my online workshops is that all the information that I teach is information that I myself had to learn through trial and error. And then as an educator and as a scientific minded individual, I try to streamline that to find a very scholarly approach to how we can communicate in a very non-biased way. And then I teach from there. So that way it's not so scary. It's a, just a very scientific approach to how energy works and how it moves. And we all have access. Anyway, I'm chattering so much. <laughs> I'm so enthralled in my, oh, I guess, yeah, I guess I should ask some other questions. I'm not letting you speak so much. I apologize. No, that's fine. Okay, so what I want to address um, in this podcast is I want to talk about um, people who have addictions. Mm -hmm. um, I personally have experience of a loved one that um, seven years clean, he was Seven years sober, didn't doing really well. Uh, there's some struggles again right now, yeah. bringing up a lot of healing that I never did. So um, it's hard, but it's also it's good because I'm stepping more into 
into needing to actually heal my side. Yeah. Because um, I did learn from you recently that I am a fixer empath. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> so, um, there's two things that I want to like convey in this. And um, I personally have experience with that. And I want to ask some questions as far as like how, how we can um, protect ourselves from that. Like I want to just take it from him and fix it. Mm -hmm. And um, I want to know, as far as what you can say, how what's what's something we can do, or those listening that may feel like they are a fixer as well, right. as far as an addict, whether it's a loved one, a family, or a friend, or anybody like that, where they feel the responsibility to fix that part of them because they see them suffering. Well, that's a, it's a very brave question to ask. And I guarantee there'll be people who will be identifying as this. When it comes to empathy in general, empathy is the ability to feel your own autonomous feelings, to be aware of someone else's emotions, but then to feel those two emotions simultaneously in tandem. And then it's that feeling of being a little overwhelmed because now you don't know whose is whose. Yes. You don't know, wait, are those my pants or your pants? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Did I put on your energetic pants or mine? So when you start to identify that empathy moves vibrationally, and I use that language for a reason, everything for me is vibrational. It, it shows up as a series of frequencies and those frequencies have patterns and dimension and shape and size. I think that's one of the reasons why doctors find the, that ability to see vibration quite interesting because again when it comes to to empathy i've learned that certain things that happen inside of the empath if the empath does not go through healing processes some of the things that is the commonality with empaths who have not gone through healing process is different kinds of malady which could be endometriosis Sometimes for that empath, it's it's Crohn's or, or irritable bowel syndrome. Sometimes for empaths, it's even some kind of hypothyroid or Hashimoto's. Now, I only know that because I look at my approach with what are the commonalities with every single different kind of empath and what are the things that manifest. So again, it's that scientific perspective of let's look at all the commonalities and leave all the anomalies. Mm -hmm. Now, because fixers, a fixer empath moves in the frequency of wounding first, Dum, dum, dum. Oh. <laughs> like the thing I don't want to hear. Yeah. So in order to, to speak about ourselves as fixer empaths, and I'm a recovering fixer myself. So don't you worry, you're in good company. Okay. When it comes to when it comes to the, the fixer empath, we identify with no guilt and no shame and without any hiding that we ourselves have wounding, meaning that there is somewhere in your youth or your adolescence where you felt like it was your job to make mom feel better or your job to help your friend because she was in pain or your job to take care of your cousin who was younger than you. It is triggered by something. And because it gets triggered by something, if I were to look at your energetic field of empathy, which is a very oval-like energy for me that moves around the whole entire circumference of the body, and I look at that oval-like energy to see, is there like dentings or uh, little places in that energetic field where it thins out? And that will tell me how much wounding there is. And if there is a lot of wounding in that energetic field, it tells me, got it. Before she even opens her mouth, I know that she's going to lean into fix her empathy because... 
When you have wounding in your empathic field, you would prefer to focus on someone else than your own wounding. It is, yes. it is your preference, right? Which is how I was able to identify yours before you said a word. <laughs> you just knew. <laughs> yeah, just knew. So when it comes to the fixer empath, what they end up doing is they have a preference to focus on someone else to say, something is wrong, let me take that for you. Something is going on with you, no worries, I'll take that for you as well. You're upset, let me kind of take that on as if it belongs to me, because it is a distraction from your own wounding, and it makes you feel better. It makes you feel like you are in service to them. It makes you feel like now they are connected because now they're having a moment of clarity and you feel connected to them in that. But that is a very codependent frequency when you feel like it is your job. And you and I have talked about this, but I do want to say this to the collective and to your individuals who are listening to this. The fixer empath is actually sabotaging the experience because what ends up happening as a fixer is you try so hard to take someone's energy, but vibrational energy that doesn't belong to you is actually never supposed to be inside of your energetic system. It's not supposed to be a part of your repository. So what ends up happening is if we liken energy that doesn't belong to you to a blood transfusion with the wrong blood type, it instantly puts your body into shock. Now that's what happens with, with a blood transfusion with the wrong blood type. The same thing happens with energy. When energy is introduced into your system, I'm going to take my partner's energy. That's my kid. I'm going to take my kid's energy. You can't tell me not to because I'm the mom and I know best and I'm going to take that energy. I have therapists who are fixers, but it's my client. It's my job. When you put that energy into your system, here's what happens because it's not supposed to belong there. You go home or you walk away from that experience, they were upset, they were angered, and you don't shake it off instantly. You wear it for hours, for days, for weeks, because it does not belong to you. And then you start to feel heavy. You start to feel confused. You start to feel like perhaps your mind is not knowing what to do, and you have a hard time going through a breakthrough. You have a hard time understanding new information because you took garbage that didn't belong to you. And guess who feels better? They do. Yeah, right? not you. <laughs> not you. They feel instantly better because you took that information for them. So here's where the grand sabotage takes place. When you take someone's energy that does not belong to you and they start to feel better, you train them. You train them to not be emotionally authoritative. You train them to always look for someone else, which would be you, always look for someone else to make them feel better. They do not learn how to be autonomous. So your partner learns that through his energetic muscle memory. Your children learn that through their energetic muscle memory. And one of the, the challenging caveats is as your children grow, your children will be attracted to other individuals who will find a way to take their emotions for them because they never learned how to do it on their own. Yeah. And mama don't want that. Uh, no. <laughs> so th these are examples of why it is imperative for us to really excise energy that doesn't belong to us. And it's a constant excisement. So if, I mean, like in my case, that's what I do, obviously. And there may be others that also do that. Um, as far as like someone who has an addiction, how can we 
how can we take like that hurt, that betrayal, you know, all that, like, because I mean, with an addict, there's lots of secrecy, there's lots of lying, there's lots of that. Mm -hmm. uh, how do we, or someone that's affected by someone like that? Yes. How, how do we like heal, heal ourselves from that as far as like, that's their choice and it is affecting us. How do we heal from, from that? When you are engaged with a addictive personality type, either in a relationship or a child that has that or a parent who has that, when you are in relationships with people who have addictive personality types, it will trigger your empathy. Your empathy will be ignited because your empathy is going to say, I got to see if I can figure this out for them. And there are also many empaths out there who are not kind and compassionate. That is not the rubric of empathy. That has nothing to do with empathy. It's just the emotions that I can feel that don't belong to me. We have to remind ourselves when we are integrated with some kind of addictive personality type that my true job as an empath is to see my energy and feel my energy and reflect the world's energy around me. I see, I reflect, or I see I'm in service to. But the empath, if they are not careful, leans into, I see, I take. I see, I absorb. I see, it belongs to me now. As opposed to the reflection of, I am in service, which means you can still successfully be in relationships with someone else who has narcissistic tendencies or even addictive personality, as long as you remind yourself what belongs to you and what doesn't belong to you. I'm not saying it will be easy because it will not. When you are engaged with a narcissist and when you are engaged with an addictive personality type, it is not easy. But in terms of you successfully feeling autonomous in that relationship is about you and they will try to bully you into taking their energy. It is in their DNA. They will try so hard. And that, that, empathic part of you is going to say, but it's not their fault. And I can still, I can still see the best versions of them. And I love that you might be able to see the best versions of them, but they have to move that energy out themselves. It cannot come from you. If you move it all, because addiction is an energy that we'll talk about, but mm -hmm. as, as you move all that energy out for them, guess what goes back easily? Addiction energy, because it's not yours to remove. It's theirs. If you teach someone how to cheat on a math test, they might get all the answers, but they're still quite nescient. They don't know the information because they didn't learn the information. They took the information without it actually being set into their ability to retain information. So now that was a very circuitous way to talk about addiction. You ready to dive into it a little bit? Yes. Like I, I really want to, I really want to have people understand like energetically, how do you, how do you see those? that have that addictive personality mm -hmm. um kind of like even just to segue into like what contributes to that as far as someone that has that yeah. and then um how we can we, we could just do that I, I had another one but i think those those are the it'll come to you it'll <laughs> come <laughs> here's the thing that's going to sound very controversial and it's going to sound very controversial because it is going to challenge the way that we think. We know that addiction is in the body in terms of chemical addiction, you know, that there's emotional addiction. So this is going to be very contradictory and it's going to challenge a lot of the viewers. Right. So buckle up, people. <laughs> We're going to dive in. 
Because everything for me is vibratory, psychology is vibratory. And addiction is a psychological energy. It visually looks like something. How do I know that? One of the very first spirit energies that I saw as a young boy when I was three years old gave me her first name, gave me her last name, showed me how she passed, showed me where she passed and what was going on with her. Now, as a young three-year-old kid, that's I wasn't watching TV. I, 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 there's no way that I could have known these kinds of things in some other language, but I knew clear as day that she was in a codependent relationship, this woman that I saw. And just so you know, the way that I saw her, she was very scary as a kid. Luckily, I wasn't afraid of her, but she showed up. She was always crying. She was, she was battered and bruised and she, her body was strung out and she showed me how she passed, which was in a car accident that she caused. She was in a codependent relationship, which is addiction. She was in a codependent relationship and she crashed the car because she wanted to show him. And then she ended up perishing in it. Now, when I found out all that information, again, there's no way that a three-year-old kid would understand addiction, would understand codependency and more. And I didn't have the language as a three-year-old kid. It wasn't until I was older that I could go back into memory recall and say, well, what was going on for her was this and this and this, right? So I bring up addiction as psychological energy because it's visual. But addiction isn't quick. Addiction has to come in through some other kind of smaller energies that move around the body. Now, this is where we're going to do a little bit of paradigm shifting because this is going to feel like it's going to challenge some of our religious ideology. It might challenge your spiritual dogma. It might challenge some of your thinking. And I encourage you to just to go in with an open mind. I Even for me, I had to really open up my mind because I was raised religiously. But I had to also tune into the things that I knew that I could evidentially back up in the way that I could see things that there's no way that I could have known. So now let's talk about it. Before we talk about how to identify what addiction energy is. Let's talk about how it starts. There are always energies moving around you way beyond spirit, way beyond spirit. Let's talk about the energy of, I call this exogenous energy. I know I, a lot of big words. So no, you and your big words, but <laughs> like it. <laughs> exogenous translates into, I experience something outside of my body. So when it comes to exogenous energy, let's talk about some of the smaller exogenous energy. In the smaller exogenous energy, we, we have something that I just call it snake because it moves in a very serpentine-like formation and it's actually quite thin. It kind of looks like those little squigglies you see in the corner of your eye sometimes. Yeah. Snake energy kind of looks like that and it's always moving. I see it everywhere. It moves around buildings. I live in New York City. Obviously, there's a lot of snake here, but I see snake in the middle of the ocean. I see snake in the middle of the woods. It, it's, it's everywhere. And what is the intention of snake? What does it do? Snake is always looking for a thought and it kind of rides the energetic of what you think. And snake is responsible for every single insecurity that you experience. Wow. Every Let me give you information. I'll be having a conversation with someone and all of a sudden I will watch snake go right into their understanding. And in that moment, I will see their face change and their energy change. And if I were to say, you're having a thought right now that just dropped your energy down, what is the insecurity? Well, my insecurity is I'm not gonna be able to do this. My insecurity is I don't know how, I don't know what to do next. How did you know? Well, I watch, I watch that energetic enter your system and it, it instantly drops your vibrations down. 
instantly. And Snake is, it starts off seemingly harmless, but Snake grows instantly. Snake is you driving down the I-5 on the freeway and someone cuts you off. And all of a sudden you have this reaction. Oh my gosh, what are you doing? Well, you felt Snake, observed Snake, spit it out. And the moment you spit it out, Snake grows in density. And then that person is angry at you because they can see you flipping them off and they break check you and then you get even angrier and then they get even, even, even angrier and it just feeds snake upon snake upon snake upon snake. Now, let's go even a step further. When snake starts to grow, snake energy visually starts to settle underneath the throat into the collarbone above the chest area. Well, what does that mean? When I see snake energy do that visually, that would be the equivalent of what you would call a Karen, right? And there's different kinds of Karen. Karen is our, if we have any friends who are watching who are international, Karen is the American term of someone who is just very incredulous all the time. So when they settle into the chest, that energy sounds like this when that person articulates. Well, prove to me that you live here. I don't believe you. You don't belong here. Speak English. I don't think so. Those are, that's snake energy in the center of where that throat and chest is. When that energy drops down even lower, going down into the solar plexus, it gets even bigger. And when that snake gets even bigger, it becomes volatile. Those are the individuals who will say, my French fries are cold, I'm trash in that restaurant. And they start to throw things. They start to behave in such a way that is physical. When I watch moments like that, where someone is just lashing out and they're so angry that they are uncontrollable, in that moment, you, your snake has become so volatile, I'll explain what it looks like to me. It no longer looks like a person. It looks like a snake in human clothing, is what it visually looks like to me, because they're uncontrollable. And when that person finally calms down and like ah, their blood is boiling, their heart is racing, ah, they take a, a time uh, to calm down. When they finally calm down, and if they don't always feel this way, if they feel repentive, then their reaction is, I am so sorry I lost control. I don't know what came over me. I was out of control. And my response is, you were out of control because you were not in your body. Snake took over. Why is this all important to know? Snake is the precursor to a larger energy because it, it all comes in volume. Snake literally opens up your energy repository. Larger energy than snake is stress. Stress looks like spirals to me. Stress grows into anxiety. Anxiety, exogenously, looks like schisms of lightning bolts around people. Anxiety grows into depression. Depression is cloud-like. It's a very dark cloud-like energy, but depression changes depending on how long you've had it and what kind of depression. Meaning if I'm looking at a client and if I see depression going behind them, that tells me, oh, it starts to kind of shape itself to look a little bit like their shadow. And that tells me, oh, very depressed, has been there for a while. If it starts to stretch that shadow, it tells me longer than five years it's been there. And sure enough, when I bring it up, when I talk about your depression, it's been there for a while. They're like, yes. No. <laughs> individuals who might be leaning into their intuition and sensing that kind of energy, what would that sound like to someone? That sounds like attachment. That sounds like demon. It sounds like shadow energy. Doesn't it sound like that? Because it looks like that. But we have to understand that all of that energy doesn't come from nefarious Satan, Lucifer. It is just energy. 
that energy does not have a mind. It doesn't move sentiently. It just has an imprint. And that's all that it does. Depression grows into addiction. And when I was a child, addiction energy is the one that scared me the most. Addiction visually looks like tar that moves like octopus tentacles. And when I was a child, I called it octopus man because it moved always, always like this very serpentine tar-like moving. It's very, very dark in form, not dark because it's scary, just dark in form. And that's what addiction looks like. And many of us experience addiction without realizing it. Codependency is addiction. Not being able to feel like you are confident because your kids are going through so much trauma and all you want to do is fix, 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 fix. That's addiction. It's small, but it's still addiction. Um, shopping could be an addiction. Over-sexualizing ourselves can be an addiction. Too much pornography is an addiction. And that all looks like something and it moves differently for everyone. And then we have people who are actually addicted to some kind of chemical substance and more. That looks like something. So here's the mantra that I want everyone to know. Because it's outside of the body and it affects the body, it drains the dopamine levels, it activates adrenaline, it actually does that. When all of those things are happening, here's the mantra. Starting from snake, we say, I am not insecure. I am experiencing insecurity. I am not stressed. I am experiencing stress. I'm not anxious. I experience anxiety. I am not depressed. I experience moments of feeling depressed. And I am not addicted. I experience extreme feelings of addiction. You see that shift? That is an empowering statement. It puts us outside of the great I am. When we use language like I am, we embody. And we want to be powerful. We want to be able to re-embody who we are. Your statement is, I am not a fixer. I am an empath who is in service. Your statement, if you're cohabiting with your partner who has addictive personality, I am strong enough to identify when he's experiencing addiction and I'm strong enough to walk away when I need to. Okay. This yeah. is really powerful statements, moving ourselves away from the great I am. If you use language of the great I am, I want it to be strong language. I am aware. I am clear. I am full of stability. I am aware of the needs of my children and I offer my services accordingly. That's a very, very different statement than I'm overwhelmed by the, by the needs of my family. Yeah, that, that change, that changes everything. Changes everything. And all it is, is just changing just the way you say it. Our semantics are so powerful. Yeah. Now, let's answer a large question that I know a lot of your followers are going to ask. But why is it there? Why does it exist? Now, I'll tell you my hypothesis in terms of what it looks like energetically, but we're going to liken it to being sick for a moment. When we are sick, when we have the flu, we've had a fever for four days, right? All that you can think about when you're really sick is, I can't wait to be better. <laughs> That's the dominant thought. I just wish that I was better. Well, the day, the moment, the hour, that your fever breaks and you start to feel a little bit different, you're still weak, but you start to feel a little bit different. The first thought in your mind is, I am so thankful. 
that I feel a little different right now. Still a little bit weak. You feel a little bit better the next day. Oh, I'm just so thankful that I'm feeling a little bit better. So our, our psychology goes into gratitude. And that sickness is imperative for us to realize the full volume of what good health feels like. Snake energy, anxiety, stress, depression, addiction, they're all exogenous and they're all a part of balance. Addiction is depression run amok, which is anxiety unfiltered, which is your stress unregulated, which is your insecurities not being handled. It goes backwards. So when we're in our highest vibration, when I'm looking at someone, usually children, vibrating really, really high, everything is really great, big, their electromagnetic energy, and in terms of their electromagnetic field is exorbitant. That higher version of who you are, your God self, your highest self, your soul self, whatever is the language that you use, that vibration of you is unable to drop by itself. It cannot do it on its own, and it won't do it on its own. The only way you drop yourself out of higher awareness is when you start to tune into snake. So snake comes in to drop that frequency down. I actually believe that snakes can be helpful because it, if you can think about your brain saying, I'm aware that I'm experiencing some insecurity, our goal is to move it back into balance. So we are more grateful. We are more energized. We are more ready to be as clear as we possibly can. The problem is snake brings in all their snaky little friends yeah. and it gets bigger. Right. And then what ends up happening is it throws you out of balance and it throws you out of alignment. And then that gets bigger. And then eventually that snake wasn't a passing insecurity. That snake was a mood. And that mood became a personality trait. And then congratulations, you are insecure. It's like growing. It is growth. It's all growth. All of it is growth. So we have to draw awareness to those experiences, meaning every single time you experience even the smallest little thread of insecurity, I want you to say to yourself, oh, that was a snake. I'll give you an example. You look down at your fingernails like, oh my goodness, my fingernails are a mess. I need a manicure. That was a snake. That's a small snake, but it was a snake. A, a, another snake would be telling your kid, knock it off. You're so noisy in the background. Well, that's another snake because you were irritable. And there's a, there's a way to talk about that. You could say, kids, come here. Listen carefully. I'm working. I know you're off to play. You're having a great time. Mama needs to make some coin. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> there are ways to do this. There are ways to redirect snake energy. It helps to understand that it is outside of you. And when you start to create awareness of it, then it changes the trajectory of how much you actually experience it. In fact, one of the things that I want everyone to do is to set your alarm for a few minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. When you set your alarm, make sure that the alarm that goes off is a new alarm, not the alarm that you use to wake up, a new alarm, make it pleasant sounding. Set that alarm, go about your day, set it, forget it. Go about your day. When that alarm goes off, say, oh, how many moments of stress or insecurity or anxiety did I experience? I experienced two snakes. I experienced 22 snakes. I experienced 120 snakes. It's the, the cognition that we're drawing to that experience. So that way, when you set your timer again later on in the day or the next day, you'll draw more attention. Huh, I really am feeling a lot of snakes. Eventually, what begins to happen is your brain creates an awareness of the smallest little moment that you experience it. 
by saying, oh, nope, nope, that was a snake. Because we're human, snake will always be a part of our existence. But the goal is to say, I'm aware that it's moving in and I bounce it off quickly. I am aware, I move it out. I am aware, I move it out. I don't even have words. That was just like the best explanation ever, like to really fully understand, to understand, just to be aware of it. It's like when you have negative thoughts come in, it's like, oh, that's not what I want. Oh, and you'll find that all negative thoughts actually grow in amalgam. So by creating awareness, this is actually our emotional healing process. We, I think a lot of times we think that healing has to be instant and it has to be immediate and it has to feel like a great big bell and whistle. Give me some kind of anecdote. Give me some kind of prescription that's going to change it instantly. But that's not how energy works. Energy is all about repetition and consistency. Right? Snake energy doesn't know that it's not helpful. It's just energy that moves and it's got an imprint and it's all that it does. It doesn't have a brain. Our human consciousness has no idea how to handle that kind of energy. So we have to attach some kind of sentient design behind it. You are easily influenced by Lucifer because you are so weak, right? I was told that a lot. When I was <laughs> <right>? <laughs> um, you know, so, so if we can redirect that to not be so much about our spiritual gatekeeping, to understand that exogenous energy is non-prejudice. It's non-prejudice. Everyone experiences it but you are so much more empowered than you realize, so much more. And that exogenous energy has nothing to do with our spiritual dogma, our religious ideology. If you are neurodivergent, if you are handicapped, it doesn't matter and it doesn't care. So we can all learn how to be in better control of that kind of exogenous energy, all of us. Emo, that that's a you got Macy over here sobbing. She's sobbing over here. <laughs> Good. Baptize those cheeks in tears, Macy. It's needed. It's needed. It really is, though. It's needed. Why is it needed? When we allow ourselves to feel and to cry, that contorted face that you make is a part of excisement. And it actually needs to happen. You know, we are so good at moving away from those emotions. We're so good at wiping our tears. We're so good at literally turning away because our physical muscle memory says, I am uncomfortable of putting our head down as we blow our nose because I am uncomfortable. But if you can allow yourself to baptize the face in tears and to contort and that, that cry, that ugly cry, it's not even verbal. It's just a contortion. And again, we think of it very similar to when you are sick and you're vomiting. We know that the body will naturally constrict in the stomach to purge what's in the stomach. It, we know that our bodies do that. We've been doing that since we were infants, but yet we shy away from when energy has to do that. And crying, that ugly cry is an excisement. The body wants to, but you shy away. And guess what happens when you shy away? You repress the emotion and you draw more fertile ground to snake. <laughs> laughing and crying <laughs> it needs to happen it needs to happen in hawaii we don't always call that ugly cry we call that tiki face cry yeah so macy you need a good tiki face cry <laughs> <laughs> oh, that 
everything that you share, like, I just, I just want to thank you for all of that insight. It's, you're welcome. You're it's, more welcome. it's difficult. Uh, but it's, I like the way that you are. I love how you can put it simply, you know, um, healing feels and sounds so difficult. It and feels, we, sounds scary. It feels terrifying. But, but healing is not a race. Healing is foundation and changing the foundation and rebuilding the foundation, changing the sediment, changing the kind of concrete that you use. Healing is a process with no ending in sight. You know, even in our, all, in our growth, growth is the same way. Even though I am able to see the things that I see, I never consider myself to be a finished product. I tell myself, I can't wait to see what I can do in five years. I can't wait to see what I can do in five months because everything is growth process. So I just want to ask one last thing, even though we could, we could have a podcast for centuries with you. <laughs> <laughs> um what 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 advice could you give to those that are addicts maybe that are struggling right now that are listening or in any sense what's something that you could give them as far as describing the snakes and 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 being able to identify that what what could you give them right now say there's somebody right now that's just in the thick of it what's what's something that they could do to start being more aware of moving out of that. I think that one of the best things to do is going to take a lot of bravado. It's going to take a lot of bravery is to go back into your own memory recall and to find the genesis. When did it start? Did it start at 12? Was it some insecurities really bothering me more than they ever did in the past? Did they start with a relationship? When was your, even your smaller addicted energies? When did my codependency start? I didn't realize I was codependent until my first high school relationship. How do I realize that? Go back into memory recall, have a conversation with yourself in memory recall. I have a whole series of processes and healings that I do in sessions with other individuals where we literally go into healing rooms. We have conversations and we heal that version of us and then we find a way to expand the version of us now. So we heal our, our inner child or our inner adolescent and then we bring that experience with us into our current reality. So the, the genesis is helpful to know and it will take work. I think one of the challenging things that addicts may not realize is it is it's not magic. It will not, poof, I'm good. It doesn't work that way. You have to put in the time and the effort and the energy. And to go back into memory recall is very, very hard. And it's hard for a multitude of reasons. Our bodies actually are wired to not do that. Our bodies and our brains work together. Our brains love to say, okay, I'm having some kind of heavy emotion. I don't want to experience this 24 hours out of the day. So I'm going to literally bypass all this emotion. Our brains do that naturally in order to survive. The issue with that is that your brain has, you know, all these neurons and synapse going inside of there. And your brain is electric energy, which is knowledge. One of the things that we learned and identified in, in the 1990s is that there are neurons in the heart they're called sensory neurites or cells in the heart, which mean that when you have a large emotion, large trauma, large experiences going on, 
it is not only happening in the brain, but your second brain is in the heart and it's reflecting the same exact thing. The major issue though, in those sensory neurons, as your brain bypasses and says, I'm good, I'll handle it later. I got stuff to do, I gotta live my life. I'll come back and I'll handle it later. Your sensory neurons in your heart, heart is a completely different muscle. Heart is magnetic energy, which is all experience energy. So what ends up happening is your heart in those sensory neurons say the exact opposite thing. They say, we're gonna hold on to this until you come back and process. And unless you come back and process, we're gonna slow you down. So years go by, and those sensory neurites say, great, slower down. And they give you kidney failure. They give you sore knees. They give you neck problems. You go to the doctor, which you should go to the doctor. You go to the doctor to kind of get malady. And then the sensory neurites say, that's not what we meant. We meant slow down and process, send her something else, migraines, send her something else, endometriosis. So you see what's starting to happen? Yeah. This is one of those reasons as a young child, and I didn't know the language of sensory neurons until I was older, but that's one of the reasons why I was like, but what is that in the heart? But what is that? Why Why are you doing that? Yeah. And I, it's, you move something in theory, but it comes back because you aren't actually processing it. Go back into memory recall, find the bravado to go through and activate your sensory neurons and process the heck out of that experience from the very beginning. That's perfect. I, I that's perfect. I, I think you're going to help a lot of, a lot of people with well, just I, that information you've provided. That's, that's a, it's a lot to process, but it's doable. It's doable, she said, and it is, and we can see that now because she's doing it. And so are you. Becky and I chose the rising phoenix as our emblem for its strength and each episode we will leave you with a quote and just as the phoenix rose from the ashes she too will rise returning from the flames clothed in nothing but her strength more beautiful than ever before shannon hurts that quote is for you becky thank you so much for joining me on this journey and thank you so much for listening. If you would like to be considered on the podcast to share your story or to come on with your invaluable insight, please email us at Macy at the rising, the Phoenix rising podcast.com or Becky at the Phoenix rising podcast.com until next time, stay up rising Phoenixes and you are loved. The Phoenix Rising Podcast is licensed and trademarked and may only be represented through this podcast. Any other entities using the same name are not licensed or trademarked.
it's doable, she said. And it is. And we can see that now because she's doing it. And so are you. Becky and I chose the Rising Phoenix as our emblem for its strength. And each episode, we will leave you with a quote. And just as the phoenix rose from the ashes, she too will rise, returning from the flames clothed in nothing but her strength, more beautiful than ever before, Shannon Hertz. That quote is for you, Becky. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. And thank you so much for listening. If you would like to be considered on the podcast to share your story or to come on with your invaluable insight, please email us at Macy at the rising, the Phoenix rising podcast.com or Becky at the Phoenix rising podcast.com. Until next time, stay up rising Phoenixes and you are loved.